American Idol may be a popular television show, one that's been on the air for an impressive 21 seasons, but American Idols, Idols with an S, are something different. American Idols are those common popular objects of worship that are all around us. Those objects of worship that regularly ensnare our neighbors, our co-workers, our leaders, and our family members. Of course, of course, most of the time the word worship is not associated with people's present day devotion to such things. They don't think in terms of worship, but we understand that concept, don't we? We understand the idea of worship. And the imagery in Scripture, this imagery of images, sometimes called graven images, this language of worship is confirmed for us by Scripture itself. Scripture teaches us, doesn't it, how to see the world. It's like a, it's like a lens, it's like lens crafters, the glasses place, right? Uh, scripture is the lens crafters of eternity. <laughs> it gives us new eyes to see the world as it truly is and things, including ourselves, as we truly are. So scripture helps us to understand this idea of images, of idols, of worship. So let's look together at some examples of how scripture does this. Turn, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, it's in the New Testament, probably right in the middle of the New Testament. Colossians 3, this is Paul's letter to an ancient church in the city of Colossae. Colossae. Listen to what the Apostle Paul tells these early disciples of Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 5. He says... Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Do you hear this morning? Are you listening in this morning as a disciple of Jesus? As a follower of Christ? As a Christian? Are you listening this morning with those ears? Then the word is to you as well. Put to death what is earthly in you. Okay? Put to death, what is therefore, what is earthly in you. Here's some examples. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Passion evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. So very clearly, what do we see here? We see Paul is warning these Christians, these disciples about vices that continue to characterize our fallen, sinful world. I don't need to tell you that. You can just look around. You continue to see it. Again, using the language of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. These are the things they, that we've always struggled with as human beings. We continue to do so today. It's abundantly clear. So we continue to struggle with these things. Paul describes them as what? As earthly. Earthly. Earthly attitudes. Earthly appetites. But notice the final item that Paul, that God through Paul, notice the final item that he calls these Christians to put to death is covetousness. Now, kind of a weird word, right? Old-fashioned word. We don't use that word a whole lot. Boy, you look very covetous, covetous today, covetous, right? 
Are you suffering from a bad case of covetousness this morning? We don't usually use it a lot, but we know that what it describes is real and continues to be very, very pervasive today. What is covetousness? It's simply greed. It's greed. It's a desire to acquire and to keep acquiring things. It's a craving to have more money, to have more stuff, even if that stuff belongs to someone else. We want it. We think we need it. Covetousness. But what is extraordinary here is the small small phrase that Paul tacks on right after the word covetousness. He writes, covetousness which is idolatry. Now, wait a minute. Idolatry? Covetousness is idolatry? Isn't idolatry when someone worships before the statue of a false god? Isn't it when someone bows down before a graven image, before a pagan deity? Isn't that idolatry? Well, that's the overwhelming way in which that word is used throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, especially in the readings from our Bible reading plan last week. Those chapters that we looked at from the prophet Isaiah. So how does Paul connect greed with groveling before a graven image? How does Paul connect greed before, how does he connect it with groveling before a graven image? Well, in this verse, and you can look at Ephesians 5, 5, where Paul does a similar thing. He adds a similar note. In this verse, the apostle does something remarkable. With that simple little tacked on phrase, he helps us to think more carefully, more deeply about the nature of idolatry. Idolatry. And that is so important for us because for the most part, Today, we are not surrounded by temples, formal temples where people come to worship carved images of false deities. That's not most of us. Idolatry like that certainly does still take place in other parts of the world. I've seen it on multiple occasions. I've witnessed it firsthand when I visited India. I've been in the temple of Hindu. I've been in several temples to Hindu gods. But again, how can Paul connect greed with groveling before a graven image? Well, Paul can make that connection because he understands something. He understands the true nature, the essence of idolatry. Consider this definition. Idolatry is when our ultimate pursuit and prize is something or someone other than God. Idolatry is when our ultimate pursuit and prize is something or someone other than God. Now, notice that definition there fits both greed and worshiping false images. Right? Greed and worshiping before false, like false God statues. They both are, they both are described in this way. This fits with both of those things. That's what Paul is getting at. Many times in the Old Testament, Israel is, Israel is warned about idolatry with this language. They are called not to go after false gods. 
Do not go after false gods. Deuteronomy 6.14, Jeremiah 25.6, and there's many, many more places where that language is used. This going after, this pursuit of something is what characterizes idolatry. A going after something or someone other than God. Thus the language of pursuit there. So in light of this definition that you see, on the screen, in light of a verse like Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, and even though we were made, you were made for God, there are sadly countless somethings and someones. We have countless pursuits and prizes to which we might attach this sobering phrase today which is idolatry. A a critical word in our working definition of of idolatry that you see on the screen, a critical word there is the word ultimate. Do you see that? Ultimate. Ultimate. The dictionary defines ultimate as the best or most extreme of its kind. And, And so we might talk about the pursuit and prize of starting a small business. We could talk about that. We could talk about the pursuit and prize of raising healthy, well-balanced kids. And we would be right in saying those are very good goals. They are. Nothing wrong with pursuing and prizing the beginning of a small business. Nothing wrong at all with pursuing and prizing a a, a well-balanced children, a healthy family. Those are very, very, very good things. And I'm sure you can think of other good goals, things that you pursue and things that you prize that are good. But if those things become our ultimate pursuit and prize, we have crossed a dangerous line. We have crossed into the territory of idolatry. Well, too often, like I've been pointing out, we believe we are more sophisticated sinners. That's sometimes how we think. Because we don't fall on the ground before a statue, right? Or dress a statue or wash a statue or bring food offerings to a statue. We think we are more sophisticated. And as a result, we are often tempted to disconnect ourselves from the huge, the massive number of biblical warnings against idolatry. Sometimes our eyes and our hearts just skim over them. We want to make sure that these words are coming right to us because as Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, words written to Christians, warnings about idolatry to Christians, we know that we are on solid ground in hearing these for ourselves, aren't we? This is the word of the Lord. He has this for us this morning. So, with that in mind, follower of Jesus, disciple of Christ, please turn with me over to Isaiah 42, 17. Isaiah chapter 42, 17. Or navigate over there in your Bible app. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 17. We looked this past week at Isaiah chapters 40, 41, 42, and 43. So, 42, 17. These are the words of God as communicated through the prophets. This is what it says. Hear this, brothers and sisters, as the word of your God, your father's word to you this morning. They are turned back and utterly put to shame. 
They who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Sobering, right? A sobering warning. So here's one of these of one of many Old Testament warnings about idolatry. In fact, our readings from this past week were filled with similar warnings. And if we were to continue on in the book of Isaiah, we would find more warnings than this. Therefore, sensitized by Paul's words to Christians, to us in Colossians 3, let's do this. Let's take a few minutes to consider what God wants to teach us about identifying and turning away from and guarding ourselves from these American idols. Amen? Let's do that. Let's do that. Now, before we look at this section of Isaiah, what it's teaching us about idolatry, let me step back, step back with me if you would, and let's consider a few important things about the context here. Isaiah chapter 40 is the beginning of the second half of this massive prophetic book. And it differs from the first half of this book in that it is ultimately addressed to an audience yet to be born. Chapters 1 through 39 were extremely relevant to Isaiah's listeners, those that he could go out and preach to and speak to, whether they be the everyday average people that lived in Jerusalem and Judea, or they be the princes, they be the king in the palace. But this chapters 40 through 66 is very different. This target audience is an audience yet to be born. In fact, though this book had and still has important things to say for all God's people, even the people who lived while Isaiah lived, it would be almost 175 years before these words would be relevant to those who are directly addressed. 175 years after Isaiah's time. So, who were those addressed in the second half of Isaiah? Well, they were men, women, and children returning in the late 6th century before Christ. That's like 536 down to like 516 B.C. They were returning from where? They were returning from exile. Remember, they had been exiled by Babylon. Back in, in successive waves, the last wave and destruction of Jerusalem being in 586 B.C. So guess where they had been? they have been living among the Babylonians. So these are the ones who are coming back now. God would use a man, a king named Cyrus, Cyrus the Persian. That was the people group that conquered the Babylonians eventually. He would use Cyrus to restore many Israelites to the promised land. In fact... Cyrus is specifically named in chapter 44, verse 28 and chapter 45, verse 1. Think about this. This book takes place 175 years before the events it's describing. And a king yet to be born many generations away is directly named by God. But this is our audience, those who will be returning to the land eventually from exile. But because they had been away from the land for so long and they had been deeply influenced by the idolatrous 
culture of Babylon, God must call them to repentance and faith here. He must call them to repentance and faith. Notice how our main verse, Isaiah 42, 17, communicates that call to repentance, a ground for repentance, a basis for repentance. They are turned back and utterly put to shame those who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Clearly, Isaiah is saying, don't go this way. If this is you, if this characterizes you, if this describes you, turn around, repent, get away from this. Stop trusting in these false gods. God's coming restoration from political political or social exile would also be, should also be a spiritual restoration. And false idols would have no place in that restoration. They must be renounced. So consider with me how God confronts the idolatry of some of these returning exiles. Again, this is what you read last week if you were doing the reading plan. So how does he confront this idolatry in these chapters? Yes, he does take time to point out the foolishness, the inadequacy so, of false so Isaiah, gods. So God, through Isaiah, takes time to point out just the foolishness of idolatry, the inadequacy of false gods. But even more effectively, please hear this, even more effectively, more powerfully, he does this very thing while emphasizing the greatness and sufficiency of the true God. That's what you're going to walk away with this morning. Hearts full, brimming. Right? That's. Look at how he does this. Here are three ways this is communicated. Isaiah chapter 40 through 43. First of all, idols, idols are created by people, but all things were created by God. Here's this contrast. Idols are created by people, but all things were created by God. Not far into chapter 40, we read this in verses 19 through 20. Take a look. After the question is asked in verse 18, To whom will you compare me? To whom will you liken God? It says, an idol. Probably better since there's no punctuation marks in the original Hebrew language. Probably better. Will you compare me to an idol? Question mark. A craftsman casts it. Why would you compare me to an idol? A workman shapes it, builds it. Makes it, creates it, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished, too impoverished for for gold, anything made of gold or silver, right? He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. Next best thing, solid wood. Right, a nice piece of wood. He seeks out then a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. So how can God be compared to an idol when an idol is simply a human fabrication? The same craft and craftsman are then mentioned in chapter 41, verse 7. You'll see them there. But these idols are more than just the products of human craftsmanship, more than just tangible things created by people. They are also the products of human imagination. That's where they come from. 
Look back to the end of chapter 41, if you would. Scan up if you're still in chapter 42. Look at the end of chapter 41. Look at verse 29. What does he say there about idols? Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. That's the truth about idols. But the true God, the God of Israel, is, take a look, He is the everlasting God, the Creator of the ends of the earth. He and He alone measured the waters. That was Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. Here's Isaiah 40, verse 12. God alone measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and marked off the heavens with a span. He and He alone stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Chapter 40, verse 22. Wow! This God is huge. The imagery is mind-boggling that He can do this. He's also, chapter 43, verse 15, take a look there, the Creator, He's also the Creator of Israel. Your King, He says. And He's reaching out, chapter 43, verse 21, He's reaching out to the people whom I formed, there's the Creator God, I formed this people for Myself that they might declare My praise. For as we read in chapter 42, Verse 8, I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. See that contrast? That leads us to a second argument against idolatry. What was the first one? Idols are created by people, but all things were created by God. Here's number two. Take a look. Idols are mute and lifeless, but the living God speaks. Idols are mute and lifeless, but the living God speaks. Isaiah chapter 41. Take a look. Verses 21 through 24. What do we see there? Chapter 41, verses 21 through 24. God challenges the idolaters among the returnees, right? Those coming back. He challenges the idolaters to make their case for these so-called gods. Look at, look at and listen to how he does that. Verse 21, chapter 41. Set forth your case, says Yahweh. Set forth your case. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them, that is their idols, Let them bring their idols and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. That is, he's saying, do anything at all. Just do something. Behold, you are nothing, says God. You are nothing. And your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. God's talking to the false gods, isn't he? The idols. 
You are nothing, he says to these idols. Your works are nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Is she who chooses you to worship you, to follow you, to serve you. And drop down to verse 26. It's clear there that in light of this challenge, no false God ever did speak. Why? Because they're human fabrications. They're not real. No false God ever did speak. In light of God's challenge, nothing would ever be declared. There would be no explanation for why the former things happened. There would be no prophecy about the things to come from these false gods. But the opposite is true with the everlasting God. The opposite is true, isn't it? The God of Israel is different. Look at Isaiah 42, verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Didn't we already see this? Didn't I mention this to you? Who does he mention by name? Long before he's ever born, Cyrus. Right? He mentions the Persian king Cyrus long before he's ever born. And this whole section is dealing with this same thing of foretelling what is to come. The very idea that the second half of Isaiah is written for an audience that's 175 years away embodies this very principle. He knows exactly what will happen in the future. Why? Because it's part of his purposes. Listen to chapter 46. We'll put it up here on the screen for you. Chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. I love the way it puts this. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Do you serve this God? Is this your God? Some think God foretells things about the future because He has the ability to look into the future and see what will happen. No! He knows what the future will bring because He has a plan and a purpose that will be carried out and nothing will stop it. Not even you. Not even your choices will stop it. Who can turn the arm of the Lord back? Who can say to him, what are you doing? No one. His purpose will stand. That's what he's relaying. That's the assurance he's giving to those who are coming back. As chapter 40, verse 8, powerfully reminds us. Take a look. The grass withers. The flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. Consider with me one more anti-idolatry argument, okay? So number two, idols are mute and lifeless, but the living God speaks and His word stands forever. It will be accomplished, right? It will not return to Him void, empty. It will accomplish the very thing for which He sends His word out. But here's one more, a number three, another argument. Number three, idols are powerless to save, but God is an all-powerful Savior. 
Idols are powerless to save, but God is an all-powerful Savior. Notice the similar language in chapter 40, verse 20. We'll put both, both of these up on the screen for you here. Chapter 40, verse 20, listen to this, and chapter 41, verse 7. An idolater is someone who seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Similarly, chapter 41, verse 7 speaks about craftsmen who strengthen it, an idol, with nails so that it cannot be moved. See that? Repeated emphasis here. Whether it's chained or nailed down, the solidity and security of an idol is again simply a human fabrication. It isn't real. So in the end, in the end, it is neither solid nor secure. Not really. Not when it matters most. But in stark contrast, the living God is able to reassure His people with these words. Look at chapter 41, verse 10 in your Bibles. Look at 41, verse 10. What does it say there? Chapter 41, verse 10. Fear not, I am with you. Do not be dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So as these people returned to the land after a long time, they were coming back and they faced dangers. It was daunting to the idea of uprooting and going back to a place that you didn't necessarily know. Maybe the old folks among you, some of them might have known it as children, but you didn't know it. So he's reassuring them in light of this. As they return to the land, they will not have to fear whatever difficulties they might face. Look at chapter 43, verse 2. 43, 2. God reassures them again. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Whatever they would face coming back, whatever difficulty they would find on that return trip, whatever difficulty they would find when they got back to the promised land, God tells them He is with them. And unlike this idol that's nailed down, (laughs) right? Chained down or nailed down, right? God is the rock of ages. He is solid. Why should they be reassured? Because, take a look on the screen. The Lord Yahweh comes with might. Chapter 40, verse 10. Because He is strong in power. Chapter 40, verse 26. He does not faint or grow weary. Chapter 40, verse 28. And then listen to how Isaiah, chapter 44, skipping ahead outside of our readings, next chapter, listen to how 44, 8 brings a couple of these amazing truths, point 2 and point 3 together. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. There is no rock. I know not any. Does that reassure you, brothers and sisters? This is our God. So as we come this morning, brothers and sisters, to this rock, capital R, 
as we come to this rock, we come with confidence. We come with confidence that Jesus Christ is the fullest fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies. Amen? Jesus Christ is the fullest fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies. Listen with me. Take a look on the screen to what Matthew chapter 12 verses 15 through 21 tells us about Jesus. It says there that many followed him. Many followed him and he healed them all. All of them. No matter what they had, no matter what kind of affliction they had. Sickness, demon possession, didn't matter. He healed them all and he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. My beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the nations, the Gentiles. That's most of us, isn't it? He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice. A word also translated often as righteousness, until he brings righteousness to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles, the nations will hope. Now, if you completed last week's reading, you should recognize those words because they're Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. What is Matthew telling us? Jesus Christ is the fullest fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies. This is about Jesus. Jesus is that chosen servant that God prophesies there. So, specifically, we come with, we celebrate this morning good news, don't we? And specifically, that good news is that the living and speaking and saving God of Isaiah chapters 40 through 43, that God, this God that Isaiah spoke about, this God that used Isaiah as his mouthpiece, that same God, that great God has come near to us in Jesus Christ. And He came to heal us, like Matthew says. He healed all who came to Him. He came to heal us. Praise God, brothers and sisters, that Jesus has not and will not break bruised reeds. Praise God that He will not quench smoldering wicks like you and me. The broken, hurts, weak, fragile sinners in peril like us that He will not simply dispense with and be done with and let the wind blow away like chaff. No, through Jesus we have this reassurance that a bruised reed He will not break. Can you, can you grasp the, the gentleness of the Savior communicated through these words? He's so gentle with you. He knows you're hurting. He knows you're broken by sin, even if you don't recognize it yet. But He will come. And even though you're a smoldering wick and you feel like, I'm just about to die. Right? The flame seems to be gone out. It's just this little bit of glow on that candle wick. 
He's not going to... He's not going to do that with you. He's going to fan you into flame. He's going to make sure you're supported. He's going to come alongside of you and gently uphold you because He's the God who said, I will uphold you by my righteous arm. The God of Isaiah who spoke in Isaiah. Brothers and sisters, behold God's servant. Behold Jesus. So because we can have confidence as disciples of Christ that we will be by grace through faith, we will be eternally upheld by God through Jesus forever and ever because of the cross, because of the empty tomb of Jesus. Guess what we can do today? We can identify and turn away from And guard ourselves from our American idols. That's what you can do this morning. Even though you, you, understandably, you're tempted to cling to those idols like a security blanket. Because maybe you have for a very long time. But the gospel empowers us and emboldens us to let go of those things because we can do so in light of the gospel without fear that we will be left lacking in any way. So in terms of specific application this morning, let me offer a couple suggestions, okay? First, take time personally, prayerfully, courageously, Take time to personalize this verse, the verse we started out with this morning, in terms of your life. Colossians 3, 5. Personalize it for you. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, specifically blank, which is idolatry. Just, just take a moment. Think about that. If God appeared to you, if Christ sat by your bedside one morning or one night before you fell asleep and He spoke the words of that verse to you and said, put to death what is earthly in you, specifically blank, which is idolatry. What would be in that blank? What would it be for you? So personalize that verse. Consider what your schedule How you spend your time, consider what your priorities, consider what your bank account, consider what the words you speak and your thought life reveals about your functionally ultimate pursuit and prize. If it's not God, who or what is ruling you this morning? Who or what is shaping your identity this morning? Please confess that to God even now. Confess that to God. And once you've confessed that idol to God, second, meditate on God's Word to you this morning through Isaiah. Really come to grips with how that idol, the one that you've named, the blank that you've filled in your life, and maybe it's many, but focus on one right now. Come to grips with how that idol is a human creation. Right? Well, no, what about sex? Sex is something God made. But the way that we conceive of sex and sexuality is a human invention so often. It's a fabrication. 
It's a story we want to tell ourselves. So it's just like these crafted idols. It's a human creation that can never give you what only God can provide because He is your Creator. Really face the fact then that your idol can never explain where you've come from or where you are going. That idol cannot do that. All it can do is lie to you today with temporary and empty promises. That's what idols are best at. It cannot explain where you've come from. It cannot explain where you're going. Who can do that? God can do that. Really come to grips as well with how that idol is as powerless to save you as a, as quicksand is to give you solid ground in the middle of a storm. Oh, look, I found some solid ground. <laughs> Guess what? You just entered it. You got to have a new problem now. That's what idolatry is. It may look secure. It may look solid because it's tacked down, it's nailed down, and it's chained down. Whatever, however you want to see it. But it is not solid. It is not secure. Idols are never solid or secure. Such idols are all a delusion, as the prophet declared. Their works, supposedly the good things that they provide, are nothing ultimately. Their metal images, that is what they appear for you to be, is really empty wind. Take the blank that you filled in and think about these three points this morning, right? Apply them to that idol. And I think if you're honest with yourself, you'll see the very thing that you've been trusting in is a delusion. But you can face that with courage because Christ is all in all. He is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient. You don't have to be afraid that you will lack or miss something, that you will not be upheld. That's the reassurance God's Word has given us this morning. I believe that like Isaiah's audience, we too will recognize and be persuaded to stop trusting in these idols when we do this. Lest we forget, they are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, man-made idols I think this is why the apostle John ended his first letter with these words take a look simple don't tell me you can't memorize scripture because you can memorize this really simple isn't it little children keep yourselves from idols little children keep yourselves from idols 1 John 5:21 Brothers and sisters, let's remind one another regularly that through Jesus we have something far, far better than even the most appealing idol this world can offer. We have something far, far better. We have someone far, far better. We have a God who is, who is real. He's not only real, we have a God who has spoken. Better still, we have a God who is powerful to provide, who is powerful to save. Amen? And if you have never responded to the call of Jesus to know this God, if you've never trusted in Him as your only hope, right, for this life, for the next life, then know that you can do that this morning. You can personally know the God who made all things, the living God who gives life. Turn away from your idols that you've recognized. Turn to Him in saving faith. 
let him redeem your life this morning to uphold you forever and ever and ever. Through Jesus, you can personally know the God of Isaiah. You can know this God and you can hear these words spoken to you in your heart. Look at these words. Fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Would you pray with me? Let's thank God for this, these amazing truths.